I think that what he's looking at here, he's looking at market dynamics. He sees Instagram is big on mobile. Facebook is terrible at mobile. And they need to, to win there in order to capture more attention. I skate to where the puck is going to be, not where it has been. My personal superpower, if there's like one thing that I think I'm really good at, I'm super curious. And, you know, people can write, write, write all they want, but what are people doing? And if there's anybody that's out there doing, they know how hard it is to actually do. One of the reasons that I understood the vision that I had is because I studied perfume. I really wanted to be a perfumer. I studied pastry and um, art, and I knew there were cows nearby. But see, I'm a comic who became an actor, so I'm cheap. Like, you know, back in the day, like, you could only do one thing. One thing. This is Polymathic by 2 p.m. Sarah, thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Um, So you just released your book. Tell me more about the impetus behind you authoring this, I don't want to call it an expose, but this deep dive into Instagram's role in Facebook and beyond. So I've covered social media companies since Facebook's IPO in 2012. And I've dug so deeply into the inner workings of Twitter, of Facebook, of Snapchat. And I, I realized in that process that there was a big part of the story missing, and that was Instagram. And as technology journalists, or as business journalists, I should say, when Instagram was acquired by Facebook in 2012, that's when we stopped asking as many questions about the business. Because when you think about about you know the traje- the story it's like in the beginning middle and they got founded there was 18 months of fast growth they got acquired for a billion dollars congratulations everyone's happy moving on and so so i think that what really got lost in there is the most interesting part of the story which happens after instagram is part of facebook uh once they're within that company and they have to figure out how to grow a tremendously culturally influential, a tremendously powerful business within Facebook, that's I think where some of the the meatiest part of the story is. For the record, I've I've begun reading the book. I'm I'm well into it. I haven't gotten to the point where they've um, integrated into Facebook yet, unfortunately. But even the precursor to that has been fascinating to to understand. Um, what do you feel like the most important moment was prior to um, the Instagram founding team's decision to go with Facebook over Twitter or, or any other option? The most important aspect of that was the independence that they were promised by Zuckerberg. They wanted they wanted to stay founders. They wanted to have that visionary role and and be able to be respected for that. And if Zuckerberg hadn't told them that they could be independent, I don't know that they would have sold. And actually I don't know that they they would have had as easy a time surviving and thriving at, on their own because they were having trouble hiring fast enough. They were having trouble scaling the business to match the popularity. And so I think that that, that offer from Zuckerberg uh, was framed in such a way that appealed to the ego of an entrepreneur and allowed them to maintain that that vision for their company. That's a really interesting point. And you know, for those who haven't read it yet, you know, one thing that I gleaned from reading the beginning of the book was that uh, 
Kevin was a pretty independent thinker. He didn't typically fit the mold of of the traditional Silicon Valley startup founder, which is what made Instagram what it is today in some ways. Uh, he took a more art-focused approach to building a, a company like that, one that was dependent on social traction as much as it was the functionality of the software. Like, What were your early sort of takeaways from how that separated him from other founders? He understood cultural appeal of a product, that it wasn't just about whether the product is solving an interesting technical problem, but whether it solves it in a way that's useful to people. And he wanted Instagram to to resonate in a way that that appealed to artists, creatives, people who were musicians. And he was very strategic about it. He sold it. He sold this beta version of the product. I say sold, but it obviously was free to people who had large followings on Twitter and essentially ran an influencer campaign. If you think about it that way, the people who were the first users of Instagram were all of these influential people. And the most of the most influential of them is Jack Dorsey himself. He's the CEO of or the founder of Twitter at the time was kicked out of his CEO job, asked by Kevin Systrom to be an angel investor and is is just constantly posting about how amazing Instagram is via Twitter, where he has among the most followers of anyone on Twitter at that time. So it's, it was really interesting, not just how they built the product to be incredibly simple and sleek and w- with design aesthetic in mind, but how they sold it to the world in a way that made it seem so alluring and exclusive and uh, like you could go there and suddenly you would be a photographer. The fascinating framing of this book to me um, is that, and we've had this conversation, is that it seems as though it's almost like um, a sequel to The Social Network. Mark! Mark! He's wired in. Sorry? He's wired in. Is he? Yes. About now, you're still wired in? Did you have that in the back of your mind as you were talking about the early years of of this app and its acquisition? Yeah, I wanted to write the story in a way that was cinematic. I, obviously, you know, based in in truth, based on my interviews. Uh, but bringing people into the room where things happen, I talked to hundreds of people, including current and former executives, but also people who were using this product in the real world, I think where my book diverges from the social network and other stories that have been told about technology companies is that it also interrogates that connection between what people are deciding on the inside and why they're deciding it and what is then affected on the outside. And I think that's really important for those of us who are telling these stories as we have seen the social societal impact of companies like like Facebook and Instagram and, and Twitter and Snapchat and TikTok, as they change our behavior, uh, it's even more relevant to think about why we act the way we do, why these products were built this way, and what the motivations were of the people building them. So are you talk, when you talk about motivations, are you talking about um, Kevin's motivations or, or Zuckerberg's in this case? Every, I mean, everyone is, is so 
human and so interconnected. All of their motivations play off each other in, in this story. Jack Dorsey, the reason he agreed to invest in Instagram is because it was the first time he'd ever been asked to make an angel investment. And he felt really special that he got asked. I mean, little things like that. Um, the reason that that Kevin Systrom and Mike Krieger decide to join Facebook, it, it's it's also to do with with their ego and their appreciation of the of what they've built and wanting to continue to be a founder of it. So I, I think that when we evaluate the company's business trajectories, we also have to evaluate why people made their decisions. It helps us understand our own decisions because we are all we are all playing in this world that they've created. We are all trying to be uh, to be relevant and successful ourselves and playing by the rules that have been set by the Kevin Systrom's and Mark Zuckerberg's of the world. That's a really fascinating look at that. I mean, I what really stood out to me was, you know, looking at Twitter's position now. Obviously, we probably both believe that Twitter is indispensable. Um, there was a certain point where you know there was a fork in the road, as you elegantly you know illustrated in the in the beginning of the book, where you know had had Twitter acquired you know Instagram when it was supposed to or when it could have, the company could look altogether different today. Um, it could have been a much much larger company. I, I want to say Instagram is what a hundred billion in revenue. Am I wrong? Well, so they are they are valued at more than a billion by analysts. They contributed twenty billion in revenue to Facebook. More than a quarter of Facebook's revenue now comes from Instagram. Okay, so Facebook overall is around eighty to ninety billion, exactly. Billion. Exactly. Instagram is a is a quarter of that. That's a, that's amazing, and and you have to venture to guess that that Twitter would have benefited greatly from from that acquisition had you know jack and you know um dick been in better on better terms or they could have killed it like like they killed vine it, it's it's one of those things where uh we we know that our technology landscape would be completely different if instagram had gone to twitter and and twitter may have may have thrived with instagram or it may have failed i i think that the the important thing to keep in mind is that these guys were all figuring it out as they went along. Zuckerberg had the great idea to keep Instagram independent within Facebook, but he didn't know how that was going to work. He'd never done it before. He'd never acquired a company that he wasn't planning to acquire, just strip it for parts and turn the founders into employees and gobble up the technology. And so... Facebook really wasn't sure what to do with Instagram when when they joined, and it was a little bit of of trial by fire. Okay, I mean that makes sense. Is there like what what about the story? Do you feel like you should have included that you didn't include, if anything? <laughs> so I I think that the I I would knowing what I know now about how we're using Instagram. I would have gone even deeper into the dark side of Instagram. I would have uh, thought about... I, one thing I learned towards the very end of my reporting process is the extent to which Facebook later restricted resources for Instagram, um, preventing them from hiring specific 
employees to work on Instagram's problems. And I would like to know a little bit, I, I'm still digging into that. I would like to know a little bit more about the consequences for everyday users of the product because Instagram is is not a, a platform where it's easy to see the bad stuff. On Twitter and Facebook, the bad stuff goes viral. People see it. Uh, they take it down or they don't, but the media can discover it. It gets written about. On Instagram, all of the illegal activity or harmful activity is happening in these communities for a particular personality, a particular hashtag behind the shroud of anonymity. And so I think that there's a whole lot more to be done on the reckoning potential uh, that we have for Instagram. We haven't really asked as many questions about the dark side of Instagram as we have about Facebook. In in your book, you even touched on sort of the origin of how they began to handle the dark side of of growth. Can you can you explain that part for those who have yet to read it? I know that you talked about the separate server um and you talked about the process yes. of you know offloading the liability. Is that something that you feel is still a mark of how Instagram does business? Well, it was in the early days possible for Instagram employees to personally address all of the suicidal content or violent content or um, porn- pornographic content. They could find it. They could do what they need to either, you know, ban the person or delete it or uh, or help them if they needed help. When the company got bigger, that became such a large burden. Uh, And because of Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, if you were to proactively take things, like prevent things from being posted, you would then become an editor of the content and be liable for it, or at least that's how they interpreted the law. And so you need to find a way to remove things after they go up. But it's very difficult to do that once you have millions of users or tens of millions, hundreds of millions. And one of the very first things that Instagram does when they're acquired by Facebook is outsource that to Facebook's people. And then this company, Instagram, which is has such a, a depth of, of relationships with its own users in a way that Facebook doesn't, suddenly they're not seeing the dark side anymore. I I guess the next question that I have is, you know, one of the things that you sort of tongue in cheek mentioned early on is the adoption of Instagram by celebrities. And you, you know, you obviously talk about um, Ashton Kutcher, you know, you, you mentioned Kim Kardashian and in passing, at least early on, you, you talk about like Kylie Jenner and the, and the Jenner Kardashian family, um, you know, in whole, um, at what point does does Instagram's e-commerce ambitions begin to play into Zuckerberg's tightening controls? Well, let me go to to the celebrity question first because I don't think a lot of I didn't certainly didn't understand before I started digging into this story that Instagram is a, a place with an editorial voice that Instagram really decides what is going to rise to the top on its platform. And it's a place where there is no resharing of content. You can't put anything on your page 
that you haven't produced. And so it becomes the ultimate personal branding tool, the ultimate benchmark of somebody's power or relevance in, in our culture. And at first, celebrities were hesitant to use it in a, in a selling way. Uh, in fact, Kris Jenner told me that her A-lister friends were skeptical about the point of joining Instagram at all. They thought that if they were going to use this product and reveal more about their lives, that they would become less interesting as celebrities, that people wouldn't think that they were famous anymore. And in fact, the opposite was true. And what what Kris Jenner and and her her family, but then also other influencers and regular people who became the influencers started to realize is that if you have an audience that thinks of you not just as a brand, but as a uh, as a wholeer lifestyle, somebody who you want to aspire to be like, then you can have this back and forth relationship. And you can say, what kind of makeup colors are most interesting for me to sell. And you can pull your followers on that. And they say, well, I really, I can't find this in any stores. Maybe you could make this. And then you make it and then they buy it because they feel like they have had a say in getting you to that point. And so the Kardashians were some of the earliest uh, mainstream celebrities to recognize the power of Instagram. But it was also something that happened pretty naturally with regular people who got followings on the platform, where suddenly they were being asked for their advice. Just like the the mommy bloggers of, of 10 years earlier, the Instagram influencers were building a rapport. And it turned out that their advice about what to buy and what to do and how to how to live was was more akin to the advice from a friend, which, as we know, as your your followers in marketing know, if your friend tells you where to go eat dinner, you're going to trust them more than you trust the Yelp review. And so influencers helped us deal with this crisis of choice on the internet, where if you go to Amazon, if you go to any e-commerce site, you have a million different things you can choose from. Um, if you go to Sephora to pick out makeup, they're like like thousands of SKUs. And if you have somebody whose taste you respect telling you exactly what to buy, when to buy it, it it just makes the decision process easier. And so that was the initial power of selling on Instagram. I really like that perspective. And I'm going to touch on a Financial Times article written about uh, your book. Uh, Just a a really quick excerpt. Um, Numerous antidotes suggest the Kardashians, Justin Bieber, and Taylor Swift have Instagram's team on speed dial as they navigate the app's explosive growth and upgrades. Later, there comes the opportunity for them to cash in on their content by promoting glossy products or sponsored content. The mini economy of influencing is born. So that sort of touches on what you were just talking about in some ways, but it also foreshadows the future of the platform. And others, you know, you mentioned that influencers of that sort and, and celebrities helped to sort of narrow the internet, right? Like to help consumers make decisions on what their preferences were, what products they wanted. Um, do you feel that the early decision to avoid the Jack Dorsey and the Ashton Kutcher advice to reshare content in in stream? Do you, how, how do you think that that individuality, that mandate for indiv- individuality, excuse me, uh, influenced 
like the the ability to drive sales with an audience on the platform. Does that make sense? I think it was yeah, I think it was absolutely key because when everything on your Instagram profile is created by you, you're not just selling one product, you're selling your entire personal brand. And you're always curating that and you're always figuring out what else fits the picture. And so it's not a one-off event when you're selling, say I'm trying to sell you some some soap, like this soap fits into my, uh, you know, OCD personality or, you know, whatever it might be. Like I, we have a, a ongoing conversation about how, how I'm trying to grow as a person and how you are. And, and I'm saying that this product fits into that conversation. So I, I do think it's very important from that respect. I also think that, that it's important that, you know, on Instagram, there was never a way for people to directly make money via ads on their content, sharing revenue with Instagram until recently. Now through IGTV, they're just starting to test that through Instagram shopping, which which we can talk about later. They're just starting to have an opportunity to make money off of this, this credential that they've built. But influencer marketing was a way to capitalize on the audience before Instagram was willing to, to help. And in the in the early chapters you've read, you remember the story of Justin Bieber came in through Scooter Braun's suggestion that he he wanted to be compensated for the amount of good content he was putting on Instagram. So much good content that Instagram kept crashing every time he posted. Uh, and Instagram said no, they didn't want to pay anyone to make anything on Instagram. You have if you want to use it, you use it. If you don't, you don't. And so Bieber quits frustrated and then he joins back again in a couple of months because Selena Gomez is there and all his friends are there. And that's just, that's just what you do. <laughs> so, so I think that, uh, that that has been their power. Now, whether they can still keep up that cultural cachet as people start more overtly selling, that'll be, that'll be difficult because when you tell somebody to buy a product because it fits into this overall lifestyle, it fits into this overall brand you're portraying. That's one thing. But when you're super explicitly saying like, I am selling this item to you, um, that might make Instagram more of a, a shopping site, more of a mall. And the early Instagram employees certainly wouldn't have approved of that transformation. But maybe now people are more willing to to abide with that. And, and actually, I think it, it might be a more transparent way to use the platform because these people who are telling you that these products are their favorite, you never know if they've been paid to do so. That's a, that's a good point. And, you know, you have to think that, uh, you know, Mr. Sistrom is pretty frustrated with how things have gone as far as the evolution of the platform is concerned. Obviously the outcome has been wonderful for him and his family and his friends, but um, it, it, it's for someone that seemed to be so focused on the authenticity of art, um, that's that's no longer what the platform is. I think you and I would both agree that it seems more uh, influence and commerce based than it does, you know, I guess driven from like the authenticity of of, of the art that you post. Oh yeah, and we are we are all selling. Hey. 
B, C. A, always B, B, C, closing. Always be closing. We are, you and I, I mean, everyone who, every teenager in high school is selling themselves on Instagram, and we are all that much more aware of what a personal brand means and what uh, what that follower number means for what we can get out of society. To that, to that end, um, you know, there's a chapter where you focused on Snapchat, right? And the decision that they made to essentially copy stories. Uh, you, you talk about uh, Kevin Systrom's displeasure with that process. He, he was resistant to it. Obviously, it worked out really well for Instagram. Um, tell me more about how you feel the internal navigation of that sort of competition with Snapchat evolved over time. So Instagram was always always very resistant to large change because they were kind of they were thinking you know, we have thought so deeply about how to curate this and how to, to make it well designed. And they thought that the reason that people loved Instagram so much was because of its beauty, because of its perfection. And it turned out that they were wrong about one aspect of that, which is the amount of tremendous pressure that everyone had on their Instagram. <laughs> and pressure is not good for business, right? Because the more pressure people feel, about the level of quality of content they're they're supposed to post, the less content they're going to post. People don't have really glamorous and exciting things going on in their lives every day. And so so that was a problem for growth, which is, as we noted earlier, the very most important thing for Facebook. They want all of their products to grow. So Instagram was under the gun to fix that problem with teens. And they wanted to to fix it in a way that didn't change what Instagram was. Now, a couple of, a couple of employees were especially insistent that Instagram take a look at what Snapchat was doing. Because Snapchat was a place where there was hardly any pressure. You could just post without makeup. You could post with a silly face. Like you could post with with um, your friends that, it, and it didn't have to be on your permanent record of life online. And it didn't have to define you and who you were and like especially for a young person, you're always changing the definition of how you see yourself. And so eventually um, what, what cinched the deal for a system and what made him recognize that they needed to do this is he went to the Oscars and he saw that celebrities had the same problem as these teens, that they were, they were only posting the very best shots of the night on their Instagrams and they were posting like 40 things on Snapchat in the same hour. They, and, and he realized that there's all this amazing stuff that's being left on the cutting room floor. And so suddenly he decided he was okay with moving to stories. And they copied Snapchat. And he was very open about what they were doing, that they were copying something that worked. And and uh, th- what's funny, I reveal my book is... <laughs> that Zuckerberg did try to buy Snapchat again <laughs> in that period. He didn't trust that Instagram would pull it off. Uh, he'd still tried to buy Snapchat just a few, a few days before Instagram stories launched. And of course, Evan Spiegel said no, um, but he didn't tell Kevin Systrom 
that plan. Interesting. So I want to pivot altogether. I mean, obviously, you've done a wonderful job of talking about the book, but leading up to the book, tell me about the process that you went about to not only approve, uh, I guess, the idea, but to gain access to all the people that you needed to to make this happen. So I've been covering these companies for a long time. So I have a lot of established sources within them. Um, and the story of of the book happening. So I wrote this cover story in Business Week in April 2018, when Zuckerberg was testifying in front of Congress for hours. I was in DC watching him and my story published about the difference between how people felt about Instagram and how people felt about Facebook and the the different way that Instagram had grown within Facebook. And I wasn't sure if people would care uh, because like I said, you know, after Instagram was acquired by Facebook, people stopped thinking as much about the business story. But in fact, people cared very greatly and suddenly started saying that I was, you know, the expert on Instagram's business, which I certainly didn't feel like I was. Uh, there were so many questions, so many more things I wanted to know. And so I started to think maybe there's a whole lot more that we don't know and a lot more that we could dig into. So I pitch a book. I have no idea what I'm going to find. Uh, I get the book deal in August of that year. And I start to realize that the story is a whole lot more interesting than I anticipated, that there was this mounting tension between Zuckerberg and Kevin Systrom. And I started to worry, what would happen if the founders left the company? You know, I'm, imagine I'm negotiating with Facebook right now for whether I have access to the founders. Like, well, what would happen if they left? What would happen if, if it's too, there's too much drama internally that they just won't participate in this project? Um, of course, I didn't absolutely need their participation because I have a lot of other sources, but it definitely helps with accuracy. But Facebook agreed, uh, despite my suspicions. And a month after they agreed, Kevin and Mike quit their jobs. <laughs> <laughs> so at that point... So did that make... Yeah, at that point, Facebook can't renege on the deal because that would make it look like things were were bad because you know Kevin and Mike left and, and everything's seemed they presented it as amicable, right? They said, Oh, you know, we've been here six years. It's time for us to try something new. Uh, of course I knew that there was a lot more happening behind the scenes. Uh, but, but yeah, after that, I think, I think the, the ice had been broken with all of these employees who had something to say. And, and it was a lot easier for people to feel justified telling me what was really going on and and Facebook still did give me access to a couple dozen internal employees, but the vast majority of my interviews are with with uh, people who talk with me without permission. Interesting. So I'm I'm assuming that well, did you or did you not have access to Zuckerberg himself? <laughs> so so I've I've spoken with Zuckerberg many times in my career, but for this particular book, for some reason, I don't know, maybe if you read the end, you'll get a hint as to why he did not want to participate. And I asked over many months as I learned more and more about what was going on behind the scenes. And eventually, like a month before my manuscript was due, I get this email from Zuckerberg, and they 
they had me ask like, what is your most, your most important question? I wanted to know why he did it. Everyone can tell me what happened, but nobody can tell me specifically what's in Zuckerberg's head beyond what he's told them. So I wanted to know why he acquired Instagram, like the process in his mind going through that day, at least maybe he could tell me that. And, uh, and his PR people responded with a quote attributable to him saying that you know, we bought it because we want, it was simple. We wanted, we thought that it had a lot of potential to grow. That was it. So that was the quote. That's Zuckerberg's participation. I can't say he didn't participate. And, <laughs> and it's so indicative of how he thinks that growth is really the drumbeat of Facebook and its strategy. and in the the motivation for all of the moves that they make. Do you really think that that was the primary reason though? Well, growth is a big umbrella term, but what what Zuckerberg saw is the network effects of Instagram. He saw that of all of the other things that were happening on mobile, there was a a surge in exponential growth in this particular app. And so when Facebook talks about it with regulators, of course, they say, oh, Instagram is just one of many photo sharing apps. You've got Path, you've got Hipstamatic, you've got Camera Plus, you've got Pick Please, all these other all these other ones that have tried the same thing. We're just buying one of them because, you know, we're not good at mobile apps. At the time, they were very terrible at mobile apps. Um, but, <laughs> but Zuckerberg already knew that Instagram was going to be the one to win it all. Why do you think that was? Because going back to what you wrote, you you discussed Andreessen Horowitz's investment into Pick Please, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, in theory, couldn't have Facebook have grown that platform? Well, they tried. They tried. They tried putting out their own camera app. It, nobody wanted to use it. They all wanted to use Instagram. It, it it's one of those things where it's not just about the product. It's about the momentum the product has and how it makes people feel and who's using it. And if you've got Bieber and and Taylor Swift and and President Obama and all these people using Instagram, why are you going to join Pick Please? Sure. I get it. So I, I guess going back to that original question I had, if you felt that that was Zuckerberg's... Okay. I think that people are allowed to have primary... Um, reasons for making decisions like that. My my gut tells me that that wasn't... If he did have a primary reason, there was a primary 1A and a primary 1B. I think that the, the ability to grow mm-hmm. with Instagram is, is 1A. I think that 1B was probably Instagram's appeal to people that had mm, the cachet that maybe Zuckerberg didn't have on his own. Like, can you speak to that? I mean, you allude to that a few times, yeah. especially early on, when you talk about Kevin Systrom's sort of be, not behavior, but the way that he carries himself. He's 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 smart, but he's a frat boy. He he loves art. He has easy access to celebrities because of what he built. Zuckerberg doesn't have that. Zuckerberg actually wasn't very motivated by that. To the frustration of the people at Instagram, I was your only friend. Get one friend. I think that what he's looking at here, he's looking at market dynamics. He sees Instagram is big on mobile. Facebook 
is terrible at mobile and they need to to win there in order to capture more attention. And so it's more, I would say more than being about growth, it's about competition, about having the, the leader in the category of a place where Facebook is weak. On the celebrity side though, you're right. Instagram was incredibly adept at getting important people to use Instagram and training them further. And in Facebook, stuck its nose up at that. They thought, why would you ever cater to one user, celebrity or not, when you could be catering to millions of users, tens of millions, hundreds of millions. And so when when Instagram starts in earnest on its on its partnership side of things and starts having cocktail parties in Ashing in Gaio Siri's home. He's a the manager of Madonna Gaio Siri's hosted this big cocktail party. The Jonas brothers came. Ariana Grande was there. Yeah, they all learned about Instagram verification in 2013, got star treatment. Um and and Instagram was doing dinners like that in, in every country. They were trying to have these direct relationships with those users. And Facebook just thought it was like kind of in self-indulgent and a waste of money. They didn't understand the power of it. But what Instagram learned from those high-profile users is the problems that were going to come down the pike for everyone else. Ariana Grande warned them early on about, about bullying because she is one of the first people to have many millions of followers. So so it was it was a really interesting way to do product development ideation to to think about how to grow uh, as opposed to Facebook which was more about the hacking us, hacking the public's attention and time spent on Facebook so that we were more and more dependent on the platform with notifications, with um, emails getting us to click. Um, that was how Facebook sought to grow and and that was one of the big things that that comes to a head later in the story, Instagram's philosophy about how to become important versus Facebook's. That's fascinating. You know, it's really funny. You know, when you uh, when you corrected me there, it's almost difficult to remember a time where the internet wasn't mobile first. And how much how much of your story influenced how we think about the internet today? Yeah, I think I think that it's important for us to think about about once these products are created, they don't really tend to change a whole lot beyond those initial ideas. And the small things that seem like like sort of convenient decisions at the time end up having huge impacts on us and our society once these products are at scale. And so when you think about Instagram deciding to do a follower model, so you know, to have it so anyone can follow anyone and they don't have to be mutually friends, instead of a friend model like Facebook, where you only follow, you only have like mutual friendships. A little decision like that, if Instagram hadn't decided to do that, they wouldn't have been a major branding platform, right? If Instagram had decided to allow resharing, they wouldn't have been a major branding platform. If Instagram had de- decided to, um, to do you know a, a different deal it, all of these things add up i think the filters we haven't talked about yet but the filters that instagram uses in the early days the filters were meant to improve the quality of our iphone photos which at the time were very grainy and had bad lighting it, it also hard to remember that era but by uh, by training us on filters 
on presenting our reality as more beautiful, more polished, more like art than than reality itself. They gave us permission to continue to do that even when phone cameras got better. Now we use Facetune or other photo editing apps. We curate our lives, our actual behavior, where we decide to travel, where we decide to eat, what we decide to do with our spare time, who we decide to date. Uh, all of these these you know visual aesthetic things are part of the equation, and and I think that 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 had a huge societal impact. So. I kind of I like peeling back the layers and thinking about these decisions and the people behind the decisions and then extrapolating it out to where we are now and why we behave and grow in the way we do. And I, I, I appreciate that very much about you. What could you tell me about like where we are now in relation to where we will be with with regards to, you know, Instagram and and e-commerce? Here's some some context. You know, just this morning I was explaining that, you know, uh, Chinese commerce is by far the most progressive in the world, right? Like they blow us out of the water. Um, Instagram and frankly, Facebook are responsible for a lot of our direct to consumer economy with, with regards to e commerce. Like, where do you see that going based on what you've learned from the internal politics and the engineering behind um, Instagram's growth? Well, I think that people are becoming brands and brands are becoming personified. And that's like the general trend of Instagram, right? All of us who are using the product are using it in some strategic, I mean, not everyone's strategic, but you at least have that awareness because you have that follower account at the top. You have all the the comments that, you know, the list of comments, the, the number of likes, like everyone has been sort of subconsciously trained on those metrics. And so everyone's becoming something of a brand if you use Instagram. And brands need to have this like broader picture of like what kind of lifestyle this brand fits into and what's the story of the brand and how do you create regular content to promote that story. And that's like that's the general trend of Instagram. And I also I also think that the the community aspect is really interesting. The dynamic that Chris Jenner saw in the very early days, when you post to your followers about a certain product, they can give you feedback and they can tell you what they want and they can tell you what they're frustrated by. They can give you customer service uh, complaints <laughs> and they can do that all directly with you through through Instagram in a way that helps you like rapidly iterate on what products to give people. And, and the final thing is just that that you're going to see a whole lot more products attached to personalities. You have seen pretty much every huge makeup influencer has their own eyeshadow palette or their own um, own line. Um, you could see a lot of people who are even just selling sweatshirts with their their names on them or their brands on them, and and I think you're going to see a lot more of that merchandising as a as an e-commerce strategy as opposed to just the typical influencer marketing where somebody is posting what they were told to post about. So yeah, and and, and that's a concept that I've I've written about extensively um, in the 2 p.m. sort of ecosystem uh, that's described as linear commerce. It's uh, it's it's somewhat the intersection between the demand driven by media and the supply that's fulfilled through e-commerce, right? And we discuss people like, whether it's 
you know, Casey Neistat's ability to impact sales for a company. Obviously, that's more YouTube focused. But Kylie Jenner, I think maybe the first report that I wrote on uh, was three years ago on her impact in the e-commerce space before, you know, people started to recognize and take her seriously. Do you see that becoming more of an issue as Facebook is beginning to pivot towards commerce? Like right now, that traffic is being driven to Shopify.com in most cases. It's very clear that Facebook wants more of that pie. Do you have any insight there at all? Yeah, I think Shopify is currently a partner for Instagram shopping, if I'm remembering correctly. But but yeah, but certainly it's it's a it's a threat to Shopify's dominance if more of this becomes coordinated through Instagram and therefore, of course, Facebook. But I, I think the other aspect is is just how rapidly everything's changing in the face of of COVID. That it, it's become harder to explicitly sell things to Instagram. But at the same time, you have influencers who are maybe not getting the same deals that they used to get or at the same rate that they used to get from major brands. So I think you're going to see two trends which may be operating in, against each other, which is that influencers are going to try to do more of this personal merchandising, new business lines because they need the money. And you're going to see consumers uh, really pull back on their spends. And I don't know, I don't know what necessarily is going to ultimately come of that. But but I think that you're going to see a lot of a lot of struggle, but also a lot of creativity. Well, I'll be sure to track that, you know, and I have one last sort of line of questioning. And that's um, like, what what's next for you at this point? I mean, obviously, your book is going to do really well. And uh, I'm sure that you're having some advanced discussions elsewhere. Like, where do you take this next? Strictly you and business. Where does what happens next? Oh wow! I mean, it's hard to it's hard to plan right now uh, for what comes next. But I, I think that this this story is still happening. I'm still a reporter at at Bloomberg and Business Week. I'm still digging into these issues. I'm really curious about what happens in in live. Really curious about what happens in commerce and what happens to the. Instagram within Facebook story as Instagram becomes more uh, eaten by the parent company. What does that mean for us? Uh, but I also think that I I want to keep writing. I want to keep telling stories. I think I could tell stories in, in different ways. Maybe this will be made into a TV show or something like that. I haven't flexed that muscle before. Um, but I, I think that this is a really rich time for understanding that when we talk about Facebook and Instagram and TikTok and Twitter, these companies have become infrastructure in our society and in our economy in a way that we weren't really thinking about them just just five or five or six years ago. And so continuing to chart that power and that influence that they have over our behavior and our in our decisions is going to be a priority for me. That's really fascinating. Sarah, uh, thank you for taking the time. I think that you did a, a wonderful job recapping the importance of not only the story, but, but the book itself. And I, I hope that, you know, it, it's something that, that, that studied for quite some time. Thank you so much. Hope you enjoy reading. <laughs> Great. Thank you. <laughs> 